When I was growing up, my best friends, well, I should probably say one of them in case they listen to these. One of my best friend's names was Lance. Lance's mom was cool because Lance's mom never had cars that moms were supposed to have who had multiple kids. I remember she had two cars when we were growing up. One was a, a two-door Mercedes convertible and one was a, a two-door Corvette convertible. They were awesome cars. They were not the Volvos and station wagons and uh, there were no minivans back then, but you know, the bulky cars that the rest of our moms drew. Lance's mom was cool. And I remember in, in the Corvette, I was always stuck. Uh, the way they were built back then, I haven't been in one in a very long time. There was a hatch between the driver and the passenger that went into the, the trunk compartment. And I would put my back half into the trunk compartment and my front half would hang out over the gear shift and I'd have to hold myself up so she could shift. And we drive all over town. I don't know why my mom and dad let me ride in this car, but it was great. It was loud. It was breezy. It was cool. Well, one day we were driving and there was a big accident up ahead. You could tell it was a big accident, not just by the lights, but there were sheets, there was twisted metal, it, it was ugly. And I remember vividly, I was probably Cameron's age, probably nine at the time, and I remember his mom says, look away guys, as we went by. And so what did I do? I decided I'd look right at the accident. And I still can see with vivid clarity what I saw when we went by that accident. It was horrendous. And still to this day, when I go by an accident, if I don't have to look, I will not look at the accident because of what I saw when I was nine years old that day. Well, today we're coming to a text that I think sometimes gets treated like that accident. You just kind of want to look away as you go by what happens here. And I think perhaps that we might be suited to slow down and look right at the scene of the crime to see the disgustingness that, that happened, and to ask God to show us why such a disgusting thing would happen, and why he would do such a frightening thing amongst his people. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, we're in Acts, end of chapter 4 into chapter 5. And let me set the stage on this by saying a couple things. I want to be very careful with how we approach this. It's a difficult text. It's going to rub you, rub you wrong at some point. Maybe not on the surface level, but trust me, as we get a little deeper into this, it'll rub you the wrong way when I show you what's really going on, assuming you're not perfect yet. But before we get there, I want, I want to encourage everybody here. I want, to, I want to let you know that we should rejoice in what God is doing in us and through us. We're obviously not perfect. It's a process called sanctification. It means maturing in your faith. And you will not be perfect until you go and meet Jesus and sin is removed. But God promises that he who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. But in the meantime, we struggle with sin. And the choice we have as Christians is to either become complacent and stagnate in our sin, or to let God convict us of sin and open the ugly stuff up to us and remove it. And it's critical to allow him to do that. But be encouraged that we're a church of people who are growing in their faith, desiring to grow in their faith, sharing their faith, not comfortable in their current level of sin. These are all things that only happen in a regenerate soul who's being worked upon by the Holy Spirit. So be encouraged, but I know that you all don't want to settle for mediocrity. So we're not going to. We're going to go ahead and take a look at a crime scene here. So we'll start in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Look at that first, uh, first it says a full number. It's everyone, everyone who is part of this church, the church, of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. It's a unique thing, isn't it? It's people are knit together. You know how if you have a brother or a sister, even if you don't like them, they're still your brother and your sister? 
You're, you're knit together by blood. You, you're, you're not going to just, well, some people do, but you're not going to abandon your family. Whatever comes, that's family. And family takes care of family. There's, there's a love there that's not based on simply, well, I enjoy your company, so I'll hang out with you. It, it's family. Well, when it comes to faith, you do realize that we're family. We have a common father through the blood of Christ. We are literal brothers and sisters in Christ. These people realized that, and they lived like that. They took care of family. They lived in relationship with family. They, they encouraged family. They really loved their family. They did that, first, because they were supposed to, and second, because it was a way to live relationally that brought glory to God. John 13, 34-35, Jesus says, Love one another by this people will know that you are my disciples. He's telling his church after he's gone, love one another as I've loved you, sacrificially, completely, unconditionally. And by doing that, the world will know that you're my disciples. We'll be revealing Christ to the world as we love one another. So we got a close-knit community. It says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. See, that is a result of of a deepening faith in Christ. There's a tightening and a loosening that goes on. There's a tightening of hearts towards one another, growing in love for one another, and a loosening of grip on stuff. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Remember that? I don't know who said that. Maybe Jesus? As we grow in our faith, we have a tightening of hearts towards one another as believers, towards love for the lost, and a loosening of grip on stuff that perishes and goes away. Matthew 6.19 is the verse I was talking about. When you get to Acts 20, verse 35, Jesus says, it's better to give than to receive. That was always my Christmas theme as a kid. I tell people that. Didn't even know where it came from. But these people didn't have these as memory verses. These people experienced the joy, the joyful reality of walking in obedience to them. That there was greater joy in giving than receiving. That there was a a joyfulness that came from loosening the grip on the stuff and tightening the grip relationally on people and caring for them. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. That's a resultant clause of what happening, what's happening above. The people are knit together. They have the loosening and the tightening going on. And as a result of that great power was given to the apostles as they were giving their testimony of the resurrection, and great grace was upon them all. And look at this. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now stop and think about that. What do people think of today when they think of a church? Well, it's a place you go. Do they usually have positive or negative feelings about the church? Well, they're a money-grubbing institution that just wants something out of you. That's a non-Christian's view. The, the church view is, well, it's a place where you go to hang out with other people that have similar beliefs and they have a lot of stuff going on and you get to know people and it's basically like a club, but we don't want to say that because that sounds wrong, but that's what it is. But how many people see the church as a group of family members gathering together to worship the Lord, living in obedience, knit together, free from idols, living with a hope and certainty that they don't have, caring for the needs of one another, and announcing to the world, our daddy's still adopting. You can be a part of this family too. Come and let us care for you, and reveal God to you, and love you, and equip you to love one another, and to go out into the lost world. Could you imagine if that's what people thought of when they looked at the church? Love one another as I have loved you. By this, they will know you are my disciples. Jesus sounds great. Get that out of here. How do we reach them? What if we backed up to what Jesus said and looked at what's going on here and followed what happens through five and see that my word is not that hard, but it starts in-house, loving one another, caring for one another. Now, these folks sold some land, and they brought it, to the apostles' feet. 
It's an offering they brought to church. And they took care of everyone's needs. We'll unpack this in a moment. But you do understand as a church family, before the Lord we have a commitment to care for the needs of one another. That does not mean that I need a private jet. There are needs and there are wants. But as people have needs in the church, it's family, folks. God says family takes care of family. Yes, earthly family, but even more so, spiritual family. We need to be attentive to that. And I've noticed we've begun to do that. But in just this part, the way it's supposed to be, guys, we need, and we'll always need, an intentionality about growing relationally in love with one another. Not because you like each other, you know, and you make each other giggle and happy all the time, but because you're brothers and sisters. We need to develop a comfort with sharing the needs we have with one another. Physical, emotional, financial, whatever they are. So that as we're able, we care for one another. I am, well, go. I'll just throw it out there. My sister-in-law is in the process of, of adopting. And there's, as you know, some of you know, there's tremendous cost associated with adoption. She happens to go to a, a very large church that Laura and I used to go to when we lived in Ohio. We were members of the church, and it struck me. Gosh, what if that was truly a family? What if that was truly a family so that as the people in the church adopted, the financial aspect just didn't exist? You know, you bring five, 6,000 people together, the cost of adoption when you spread it across the family should not be much at all, should it? And what if the world looked at that? What if the world said, my, my goodness, how did you afford that? What do you mean, how did I afford that? My family helped me out. What kind of family you got? Oh, it's a huge, huge family. Thousands of people. Multi-generational. And my daddy is awesome. Can I introduce you? You see where I'm going with this? The way it was supposed to be is what we're seeing here. Perfect? Not perfect, no. But a lot different than what we think of. And as we look at this wonderful example, we meet Joseph. Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph. We know him better as Barnabas. It's a heck of a nickname. Son of encouragement. I mean, that, that's an awesome nickname, isn't it? And that's what everybody called him. Well, the son of encouragement sold a field. But often we miss what it says there. A Levite. Do you know what a Levite is? Now when you think of Barnabas selling a field, it's a rich dude with a seaside villa or two. He's going to liquidate a little bit because he's convicted. Yeah, Jesus, I got too much. Three seaside villas is too much. I'm going to liquidate one and, and bring it to the church. But what's a Levite? There's a reason that's in there. Right. How much land were they allowed to old, old, own under the Old Covenant? They didn't own land. Right. Now, obviously, that changed under the New Covenant. But the reason that this is included, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, God doesn't waste words. That's what I do. God doesn't. God's telling you, this is not a land-rich man. He's a Levite. What he's selling here wasn't out of his abundance. What he's doing here is giving a sacrificial, generous, joyful, love offering with no conditions or strings attached. It doesn't say he laid it at the apostles' feet with explicit instructions for how to use and demanded a plaque be laid upon the foundation of the building that says Barnabas built this building. I didn't read any of that there. He sold it and he gave it. And I think we might want to ask the question, why? Why did he do that? Do you have to sell your land and give it all to God? Why did Barnabas do this? Was he crazy? Did he want a cool nickname? Hey, they'll either call me Moneybags or Son of Encouragement, and I like it. I'll get a better position in the church. Let's try this. Or could it just be that as Barnabas was growing in his faith and realizing how much God loved him and what God did for him and the reality of storing up treasures on earth versus storing up treasures in heaven and the reality of sin and separation from God and who he was and who he had become that he realized the wonderful opportunity he had to express his love to God in a free will act of offering 
And he rejoiced in that. Could it be that simple? I, th I think it really could. You know, I think of Abel and Cain and Abel's offering. I think of the, the poor widow in Luke 21 with her last two copper coins. Remember those? And then I think Barnabas can fall right in with that. These are offerings that bring tremendous joy to God. And it's not so much about how much. It's about the heart behind it. And now that we've looked at this wonderful example of the church and Joseph, who we know better as Barnabas, now it's going to just tank off the cliff and go downhill. You ready? But. Starts with the big but. But. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He's still okay. Nothing horrible yet. But, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried and the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out. And buried her beside her husband in great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now God just killed two folks in his church. Should we just stop? Because this could get highly uncomfortable. Because God, God doesn't kill people in his church. You know, we're, we're saved by grace through faith and we're, we're forgiven. This doesn't happen. That, that doesn't belong in there. Let's move on. But I have a crime scene on my hands. I got two dead folks in church. Let's back it up. Let's see what the problem is. And perhaps you will be highly encouraged. Perhaps you might become highly convicted. Perhaps a little of both. And then I'm going to really make it ugly for all of us. You ready? We're dealing with money. We're dealing with offerings. We're dealing with what we know better as tithes. For those of you that have been here a long time, you've noticed we don't have annual stewardship series. You know, don't most churches have like a, a two to three week stewardship series? You do them in January, right after people spend a lot of money in the holidays. You, you hit them up, you try, to, you try to get the bucket filled a little more, and, and you redo it the next year. We ain't never going to do, that is horrible grammar, let me rephrase that. We will never do, God willing, a stewardship campaign. You know why? Because the stewardship is a symptom of the heart. But let's back it up. Let, let me ask you a question and give you, a, give you a surprising answer. These people are all selling fields. Ananias and Sapphira are bringing cash in. Does a Christian have to tithe? Now, in the stewardship campaign, I have to explain to you, yes, you do, and here's why, and if you don't. But does a Christian have to tithe? Not at all. Not one stinking cent. Now, don't leave now. <laughs> Not one stinking cent. What I see is some people gave a lot of money to the church and got dead. So I don't want to ever manipulate money out of anybody's pocket to that box because you may very well have, a, have put yourself at risk of suicide and I may be guilty of a homicidal contributions here. We need to be very careful with what we are giving to God. Let me say that clearly. A Christian does not have to tithe. Now you're like, whoo! But, will a Christian tithe? Yes. But what about a Christian who doesn't tithe? Well, get a little uncomfortable here. 
because I got two dead folks on my hands. You do not have to. You are saved by grace through faith and not by works. God does not want a penny from you. But if you are saved by grace through faith, something happens. It's not the penny that God's after. It's the heart. And watch what happens here. In the Old Testament, there was a legal requirement to give a tithe offering to God. 10% was a starting point, and then it got built up from there as you gave free will and thanks and peace offerings as you went to the festivals. And it was a giant flat tax across the board where God said, everything you have is mine, and I am commanding you to give back a certain percentage. Everyone, regardless of what you own, a certain percentage is to be given back to me as an offering. And this should be done from a gracious heart that desires to do it. But it is a commandment, it's not a request. Well, through Christ, we're no longer under the law, are we? We, we no longer have that requirement upon us to be in a right standing with God, which is true. But the law still applies, does it not? Paul says the law serves to convict us of sin. We're still to walk in obedience, not to the ceremonial law, but to the moral and ethical components of the law. You look at Matthew 23, 23. Remember you had these, these Pharisees trompsing around? Maybe I'll flip over there and make sure I have the wording exactly right. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says, this is the uh, seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected, pay attention closely here, the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus is saying, in effect, y'all are tithing off everything. Good! But that's not what's most important. You've got to pay attention to the more important stuff, not to the neglect of the less important. He's saying, the tithe is not the big deal. It's the heart. Let the tithe flow from the heart. But get the heart right, or the, the tithe means absolutely nothing. You could go all throughout the, the New Testament and Old Testament passages. You could try to dance your way around it. But we have this uncomfortable tension that God commands His people to still tithe. The average evangelical Christian. What does that term mean? Don't you love these different mainline Christians, Catholics, evangelical You know there's one type of Christian. Okay? But the term evangelical usually means people who profess central doctrines of faith. Doesn't, doesn't mean you're necessarily, but there's a better chance. So of those who profess central doctrines, it's true. The average American gives to God 2% of their income. Doesn't mean they're not a Christian. But that should be of horrendous concern to the American church. Why? God says do. We don't do. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We're saying, I know your commandments. I'm not going to do it. I ain't going to give you my money. I ain't going to share my faith. I ain't going to do anything I don't want to do. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But it might make you a little uncomfortable because I got two dead, dead people on my hands here. Jesus also says, when I return, will I even find faith on earth? Away from me, I never knew you. Let a holy discomfort right in. I'm not going to scare you to, to walk out of here today to think, well, well, am I really a Christian? I think some of you might be highly encouraged, but realize what's going on. So we're still under the tithe, and then you go to 2 Corinthians 9.7. You know what 2 Corinthians 9.7 says? It, it tells you how much to give them. Flip over there. 2 Corinthians. I would love to have skipped this passage personally, but we can't do that. It says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that doesn't mean like, well, I'm good with one-tenth of one percent, God. Because it's kind of hard to say that that's what, that's what God's convicted you of when, when he's told you something clear on the other side. It's also telling me that I, as a pastor or church leader, you don't want to manipulate people. You want cheerful givers. So we're going to get to the heart of this in a minute. But understand, we have a clear teaching of Christ that's highly uncomfortable. We also need to realize, though, the tithe is a gift that God gives His people. The non-Christian comes into a church and loads, loads an offering plate 
Do you think God is impressed? Do you think God's saying, whew, we were tight this month, thank you. Do you think God even finds anything pleasing about that? No. It doesn't make him in a right situation with God. God doesn't need the money. God wants the heart. But you and I as Christians are in a unique situation where through the blood of Christ, God has given us the ability to bring acceptable and pleasing offerings of various types to him, which he will accept, which will bring him glory, which we can rejoice in. Do you ever think of that? The tithe is a gift that God entrusts to us. Well, it ain't much of a gift, God. It's a gift. He's saying, everything you have, everything you have is mine on loan, and you're a steward of it. It would be like, Dan, if you gave Dylan your checkbook and your credit card and said, buddy, you're in charge. It's all mine. You're in charge. Use it in a way that you think will be pleasing to me. And Dylan's like, I got some ideas. And he shows up in a Lamborghini next church, financed out, and... And he's got himself a little, a little house to get ready for after he graduates. And he's all dressed to the nines and, you know, fancy suits. And, and then you, your dad says, hey, bud, what's going on? Well, that gets a little bit scary, doesn't it? You understand the, the awesome responsibility. It's not just the money. It's the time, how many days you live. It's the breath you draw. It's the talents. It's the ability that you have to do what you do. It's all God's on loan for you to steward for His glory, and one day we give an account. Now the problem we often have is we live life and don't realize it till later on. And then it's hard to, to resituate yourself when you've tapped yourself out on time, talent, and treasure for your own uses, and then God says, no, 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 that readjustment can be quite difficult. Now, most of us didn't grow up in a Christian home being, being taught the ways of God and, and seeing an example of someone who loves Him walking in obedience so we might grow up that way. For most of us, we got smacked in the face with it sometime in adulthood, and it's like, whoa, we're readjusting. But the tithe is a gift. It reminds us that all we have is really His. It keeps our focus on God. It helps prevent us from a love of money. It's a practical way to express love and gratitude to God. It's a practical way to care for the needs of one another. It's actually a wonderful gift. It takes a temperature of our spiritual status. In the Old Testament, people gave, were to give gratefully. How much more grateful should we be today in the position we stand before God through Christ? Stop and think about that. Completely forgiven. A child of God for all of eternity. God promises to give us everything we need and every good and wonderful things, but so often we doubt that He'll do what He says. But now that I've hammered on that issue of the offering, you realize the issue wasn't the offering. The issue here was the heart. Ananias and Sapphira, 5-1, the big butt. You know, Sir Mix-a-Lot says, I like big butts. Pastors like big butts and pastor. I put one T on that, Renee. Don't look at me that way. Because when you got a big butt at the beginning of a chapter, it's telling you something's going on. So what's the butt here for? Because Barnabas gave this wonderful gift. He got the nickname, but. Ananias and Sapphira looked at him and they said, let's get one of those nicknames for us. Sapphira says, how do we do it, Ananias? Ananias says, I have a plan. Let's sell one of our fields for a lot of money. And we'll keep some of it for ourselves. And we'll bring some of it to the church. And we'll tell them it's all the money from the field. And then they'll give us nicknames too. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So they did this. Ananias. Do you know what the name Ananias means? I do. If I can find the right page. Otherwise I have to make something up. There it is. Ananias means the Lord is gracious. And Sapphira means beautiful. Did they live that way? No. They made this plan. All right, honey, I got the cash. You keep this much and put it somewhere safe. And I'll bring this much and put it at the apostles' feet and check out the nickname I come home with today. Oh, Ananias, this is so awesome. We'll be put in positions of authority in the church and people will look up to us like they do Barnabas. What a great idea, honey. Oh, I know. I'm such a wise man. And he goes in. He lays the money down. Now imagine this. You know, when I first came to faith, I, I, you know, gosh, those plates would come by, and first you try to kind of stick the singles in, you know, you, you load them heavy, so it looks like a big billfold, you put a fiver on the outside, you move it, in, like, yeah! Then you went to the big double-digit bills, and you were really high rolling here. But I had sticky hands, I had stick them. 
they were, it was stuck in my pocket and it was just, ugh. But people all saw the plate coming by, so you, you, wanted, you wanted the plate to, to, to be recognized in the plate. I'm glad that God allowed me to pass through those times for today. But think of Ananias coming in. Oh, me and Sapphira, we sold a field. Peter, oh, there you go. You know, he's like, you see that? He's like, he probably waited until it was crowded so everybody would see what he did. I'm talking serious cash on here. He's not going to try to compete in a fleshly way with Barnabas with like two copper coins. He liquidated some assets and laid it down. You know, he's sitting back now. Hey. And then all of a sudden, Peter says to him, how does Peter know this? You ever wonder that? How did Peter know what was going on? It's the Holy Spirit. God's saying, don't you screw around with my church, Ananias. And he lets Peter know what's going on. Peter says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? He's saying, before you sold it, it was yours. After you sold it, it was yours. But when you laid it there, you're messing with God. But you lied to God. What is wrong with you? It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Peter spoke, Ananias dropped dead. You ever, you ever hear the expression, you scared me to death? When you, if you, as Christians, I'll explain this, who are not under the wrath of God, but if God spoke to you and just let a little glimpse of his wrath out, you would drop dead instantaneously. I believe Ananias probably went into cardiac arrest and instantaneously died. You get a glimpse of the holiness and the wrath of God shown on your sin, boom! You will die. You can't, you can't handle it. You know, as in a few good men, you can't handle the truth. We can't handle the truth apart from Christ. And Ananias saw it and dropped flat dead. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. This is a wacky evangelistic strategy. Let's let the world know what we're up to. Our God kills his people who lie. Come and join us. That's some scary stuff. And then his wife comes in three hours later. They just dug a hole and stuck him in the ground. And his wife comes in. Peter says to her, Sapphira, what's this stuff your husband brought in? Is that all of it? Yeah. What's the nickname? It's called dead, lady. Boom. She falls to the ground, too. This is some scary business. How seriously does God take sin? Don't we often cheapen grace? Don't we often go with the, I'm saved by grace through faith and not by works, so what I do ultimately doesn't matter because it's forgiven through Christ. This is true. But I got two dead bodies on my hand here. The Bible tells us that God disciplines his children. They Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, which I have no reason to believe they weren't. They didn't die and go to hell, but they died. Now you say, God doesn't really kill people like that. Well, 1 Corinthians 11. You go to verse 27 there, and Paul's talking about communion. You know this passage? He's saying, be very careful how you take communion, folks. Who takes communion? God's people, right? This is the, the Passover celebration, celebration through Christ. Paul's saying, some of y'all are taking communion the wrong way. And I want you to be careful. It says, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is getting a little uncomfortable. God's, God's killing Christians. Now, does that mean if you're sinning that you should be afraid that you will drop dead at any moment? Well, I don't know with 100% certainty that God doesn't kill people today, but I don't expect we're going to drop dead from sinning. But I think we need to be very careful about how lightly we might take sin, because God doesn't take sin lightly. I think what we have going on here in Acts 5 and in 1 Corinthians 11 to a degree is, God is setting a precedent for his church. He's saying, this is the bride of Christ. This is my body on the earth. You represent me to the earth. Don't you dare be hypocrites. Don't you dare lie to me or defame my name to the world. Don't you dare. And let me show you how seriously I take this. 
Ananias and Sapphira have dropped dead as hypocrites. Don't you dare. We need to take that seriously. God doesn't want moral monsters. God doesn't want us to just self-control ourselves into tweaking our lives to fall into the confines of his moral and ethical law. Not at all. That was a problem the Pharisees had and the Sadducees had. God wants us to experience the joy of living relationally with him and trusting him. He wants us to represent him to the world so that all might be saved and none should be lost. We know that won't happen completely, though it's his desire. God takes sin in his church very seriously, drop dead seriously, which is what the title of this sermon would have been if you had a pamphlet. And we must, too. We must never have a comfort level with sin in the church because, first of all, God takes it seriously. Second of all, it negatively impacts our ability to be a light into a dark world. As we go into chapter 5, you will see the evangelistic power of the early church. Have you realized as we've been reading how fast people are coming to faith and the massive numbers of people come to faith and how the Holy Spirit's working in the lives? He's doing this through a pure church made up of pure individuals. Not perfect, but people who are not allowing sin to sit complacently. And he makes an example with the offering of Ananias and Sapphira. He purifies his church. Have we not in the American church allowed purity in the church to go away? Have we not created an environment perhaps where weeds and wheat intermingle so we don't even know the difference and the world looks at a church and they don't see a pure bride of Christ. They see a messy institution that looks a whole lot similar to what they have out there. And we go consumeristic and we conform to the ways of the world and we justify sin in our lives and we wonder, God, why don't people come to faith? Why don't you use me powerfully? Why don't I have this joy that you talk about? Why don't I experience this abundant life? And God says, slow down. And here's the uncomfortable part. You ready for this? At this point, if just dealing with, with finances, there may be some of you here right now who can relate way over with Barnabas and rejoice in that. Praise God for that. God, thank you for giving me a heart that is able to desire to be faithful to you with the financial resources you've entrusted to me. Rejoice in that. Maybe some of you relate more to Ananias and Sapphira. Don't ignore that. But this goes so much more deeper. You ready? When you professed faith in Christ, what did you give God? Your whole life. With my whole heart I seek you. Whole heart. Let me not wander from your commandments, right? All, all, all of our time, talent, and treasure, we declare Christ is yours. For your glory, not my own. Whatever you want to do with me, may it be done. Your will, not my will. The whole thing. Right? You tracking with me? Have you ever not given him the whole thing? Has there ever been a part of your life, your time, your talent, your treasure, that you haven't fully given to God? Have you ever allowed that to sit complacently? And let it go by. And it's just no big deal. It's a huge deal. It's why Jesus died. Stop and think about that. Jesus died so that we might have the gift of eternal life. God's desire is for us to be joyful and content and blessed people with a certainty of hope to live on this side of eternity, understanding His sovereignty, so we might be a truly joyful and thankful people in a lost world who are not gripped so tightly onto the idols of the world thinking joy comes from them, but gripped onto Him through His strength, knowing that joy only comes through Him. But we call Him a liar at times. How seriously does He take that? It's called hypocrisy. I'm a hypocrite. You know what the church is? The church is a collection of forgiven hypocrites who gather together once a week, who do life together, who go out into the world and declare, I am a hypocrite who is forgiven, and you can be forgiven too. I'm a good-for-nothing, rotten sinner who on my own can do nothing pleasing to God, but through Christ, I can do all things. No matter what you have done, you can be forgiven. You and I don't have to live in fear of God killing us, I don't believe. As long as we don't allow complacency of sin to creep in. Notice back here, Peter says to him, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Does the devil have the power to control us as Christians? It's an interesting question to ponder. Does the devil have the power to influence or control what we do? Absolutely. Only if we give it to him. And how do we give it to him? By allowing sin to go unchecked in our lives. Forgetting to don the armor of God. We were talking about that last night. You give him an opening, he's coming in. And when he comes in, it's going to get ugly. We need to guard our minds and our hearts. We need to walk in obedience to God because as we do that, the devil has no, no power to influence us. But as we distance ourselves from God and begin to be isolated sheep, there's a prowling wolf out there looking to tear us apart. He tries to work his way into the church. He tries to work his way into our hearts. He tries to dabble lies out there to us. And in our culture, I think finances are a big one. Here's the joy. Here's the joy. Come and get more. Come and get more. Ignore your family. Ignore God's commands. Come and get it. You'll be happy. And the world just drools after it. How many kids go off to college? Madeline, ready? What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to glorify God with my whole heart. I want to do something that brings him honor and whatever, whatever vocation he allows me to serve. That's not what I said when I went to college. I want to be rich. Wasn't there a song like that back in the day? I want to do something that makes a lot of money because if I make a lot of money, I'll be happy. I'll have security. I'll be joyful. That's what the, the culture tells me. Dirty little secret. I know a lot of really, really, really rich people. There's not that much security. There's not real joy. I know some really rich Christian folks with a whole lot of joy, a whole lot of security, a whole lot of happiness. And the first thing they'll tell you, it ain't from the stuff. But the stuff is wonderful to enjoy the right way. Realize that. God often blesses His people with massive financial resources. Praise Him for it. Use Him responsibly, but praise Him for it and enjoy it. The issue isn't the money, the issue is the heart, and God doesn't tolerate hypocrisy. You will see, I'll make you this promise, we will see, as we walk through life together, helping one another do this, as we strive after a greater purity of heart, as we seek to walk in greater obedience to God with all of our time and talent and treasure, and it's hard work and it doesn't happen just like that. We're not all going to come back here next week like, I'm good, and there are 700 people I led to faith this week. It doesn't happen like that. But as we do this, we're going to start seeing crazy stuff. You know, you know that hypothetical joy Scripture talks about that we can have in Christ? You know, we all know you're supposed to have it, but we all wonder, okay, God, what is it really like? We'll start to experience that. You know how God says the Holy Spirit will work through us to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, but sometimes we go out there and we try to let Him do that, but it doesn't happen so often? As we grow in greater purity and walk in greater obedience, watch what starts to happen. You know, the Bible says that you need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. The implication is people will say to you, what's the hope that you have? But we don't often hear that. As we walk in greater purity, we'll start to see that. And then people start to look at the church as it becomes what it was meant to be, not what the world has tried to make it become. And for those that God's opening the eyes of, there's an attractiveness to it. It's not, hey, what do you have going on that I can become a part of there? It's... Y'all really seem to love one another, care for one another, committed to one another. Why? You go ahead and tell them. Because our dad told us to. See where I'm going here? This isn't, you guys know this, this is no social club. It's a family reunion we have each week to glorify our Father, to go out into the world. Not, not to have no interaction until next week. We should, we should have certain interaction. We should be diligent about building relationships with one another. This family, this family business. And our daddy's in the adopting business. And we're doing a horrible, in general, not specifically, we're doing a horrible job of representing our loving adopting daddy to the world while he's still looking to adopt more kids. But evangelism begins in the house of God. It begins with a purity of heart among those who are called to go out. So what do we do with all this? I think we repent. Maybe you can rejoice as a Barnabas with your finances. That's awesome. But I'd imagine there's a, a part of your life that you haven't given fully to God. Repent. Father, I'm sorry. 
I have not given my whole life to you. I know that Christ died for me, that He's Lord of my life, that I am His servant, that I am His slave to live for His glory. Father, I have not done that well. I haven't done it perfectly. And I beg your forgiveness and that you help me to not do that any longer. Then you rejoice. Do you know why you rejoice? Because you are forgiven. God doesn't look upon you and your failures. He looks at you through the blood of Christ. You're forgiven. Dylan blew the money on the credit card and the check. Dan doesn't say, get out. You're not my son anymore. He says, give me the checkbook and give me the credit card, you fool, and go return this stuff. And we'll work to fix it. But I still love you. And I forgive you, and you'll always be my son. Rejoice in that. God will never leave us nor forsake us. Ask God for help. Father, I can't do this on my own. i got a tight grip on my stuff, and I don't really like these people. you got to help me, God, because people are screwed up. Money's a lot better to hang out with, and stuff is more fun. Give me a heart after your own heart. Give me eyes to see people as you see them. And over time, you watch that change. You realize those people that you don't like... Imagine how God used to see you apart from Christ. They become a whole lot more lovely. And try again. Don't give up. Persevere. Endure. It was last night you asked about that uh, passage and, and the role of the Holy Spirit. Romans, look at Romans, not right now, you can write it down, 15.4. The God of encouragement. We're to persevere. We're to try again and again and again. And when we fail, we ask forgiveness. We rejoice in being forgiven. And we get up and we try again through the power of the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, we understand this. God calls for a life of radical obedience not because he wants moral monsters. Not because he wants our stuff. Not because he wants us to do what he says so the world looks a whole lot prettier. God isn't about just stopping crime and ending poverty and having everybody fed to their fill and everybody just getting along and cutting their lawn and raking their leaves the right way. That's not what God's all about. God is about abundant life for believers. He's about living in relationship with people so they might have the lives they were meant to have and call others to the same life and be prepared for all of eternity. The moral stuff is a symptom. We don't have to go out into the world and, and try to bend people's will to conform, conform to God's desires. You know, it gets so screwy in politics, doesn't it? I am against same-sex marriage. It's a sin. We're telling people, so don't do it. But we never give them the why. You know? We never, we never give them the why. I feel we need to care for the poor better, so do it. The why. Give them the why. Let it flow naturally. See what I'm saying? God wants us to have joy and be blessed and to be content. And He desires that for all people. And that is why He calls us to a life of radical obedience. Because on our own we can't do it. And it won't always make sense. But don't miss this part and I'll end on this. God desires that none should be lost and all should be saved. And He does that primarily through our witness which He demands. And the witness that he uses is a witness of a pure heart, of a person filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean a person who lives perfectly. It means a person who desires to live a life glorifying to God in greater measure day by day. David was a man after God's own heart. David slept with Bathsheba. David killed Uriah. David had the census. That's a man after God's own heart because he did all the bad stuff? No. It's because of what happened after he did the bad stuff. The conviction, the desire to grow in godliness. That's what God uses. That's what God demands. Ananias and Sapphira did not bring that to the table. And God dealt with that severely. You and I, at times, do not bring that to, table, to the table with our whole lives. We're to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. My challenge, I feel God's challenge to me, which I'll throw out to you, Take him seriously. Do the impossible through his power. See what he does in us. See what he does through us. Let's stop trying to live lives the way that we think it works, but start doing it the way that God promises. And let's see what happens. Let's see if we'll call him a liar down the road, or if every word of God does, in fact, prove true. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that you would have planted some seeds in all of our hearts. 
that you would begin to do a mighty work within us. That you would help us understand that your commandments truly are not burdensome. That you're not here to rob us of joy. You're here to give us joy. You didn't come to make life miserable and overbearing and to stick us in a box of moral conformity to your will so that we never smile or laugh or have any fun and then one day we die and before then we have to pretend we're joyful so other people might listen to what we have to say. But God, you came so that you might bless us. You came so that we could have true joy. You delight in our joy. You gave us every good and wonderful gift. It doesn't mean you came, Father, to just tickle our fancies and make us giggle through life. We were made for so much more than that. But you came so that we might have a certainty of hope. We might have true security. We might have true joy. We might truly be complacent. When we laugh, it would be a true laugh. When we rejoice, it would be a true rejoicing. As we approach Thanksgiving on Thursday, we are the only people who can be truly thankful at all times because of you, sovereign, loving, forgiving Father. And we thank you for that. But yet, God, we confess we have similarities to Ananias and Sapphira. At times, we are people pleasers. At times, we are self-pleasers. At times, we want our will to be done and not yours. And we really struggle with believing that your will will always be better. Because, God, sometimes life just looks screwed up and scary. And, Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need your encouragement. We need your strength. We need your guidance. We need to be reminded daily of the incredible love you have for us, of the incredible power you possess, and how you promise, God, that you will use all things for the good of those who love you. That means no matter what situation we are going through right now, you have allowed it for your perfect purposes, which are for our greater good. And Father, we thank you for that. So Father, if where this text is, can be an encouragement, I pray that we are highly encouraged. For those areas that we are walking in greater and greater obedience, Father, we praise you and thank you for allowing us to do that, for equipping us to do that, for allowing us to bring joy and glory to you through our obedient walk. Be yet, God, we confess there are certain areas in our lives where we don't give you the whole thing. And on our own, we recognize that we never will. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to see the joy in obedience, that you would help us to desire to do the things you call us to, that you would give us the power to press on and fight the good fight, Father, for your glory, because there's serious business at hand. Yes, our joy rests in the balance, but so does the eternal destiny of so many others. I pray, Holy Father, you have grafted us in to your vine, who have made us your children, who call us your bride, that as your church, your body on this earth, we would represent you well. We would be wonderful ambassadors to Christ, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to you. We would be a royal priesthood, Father, who would bring you to the people and just blow their minds away with your magnificent deeds. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would open the eyes of many. And I pray, though, Father, that you would allow us to begin that work as you command us, here at home, in your family, in our hearts, that they would become more and more pure, that you would create a clean heart in us and renew a right spirit for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.